This month, The Spectator becomes the first magazine in history to print 10,000 issues, and we'd like to celebrate with you. Subscribe to The Spectator for 12 weeks for just £12. Plus, we'll send you a bottle of commemorative Spectator gin, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash celebrate. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast discussing some of the most important and intriguing issues within our pages. I'm Cindy Yu. This week it's Easter, but what will happen to Christianity in a time when you can't go to church? I talk to Luke Coppen and Tom Holland. I also hear from the front line in New York, one of the new epicenters of the coronavirus, about what it's like in hospitals there. And at the very end, I find out about the importance of humour in dark times. First, the former editor of the Catholic Herald, Luke Coppen, writes a cover piece this week, asking whether or not coronavirus is an opportunity for resurgence for Christianity in Britain, or its ruination. He joins me now, together with author and historian Tom Holland, whose latest book, Dominion, takes a look at the lasting impact of Christianity. So Luke, why do you think this is such a pivotal moment? This is a completely unique uh, Easter uh, for Christians around the world, in, in that churches everywhere are closed so Christians are going to be having to uh, follow the Holy Week liturgies from their home via live streams on the internet and in this unique situation there's a big debate going on uh, among Christian thinkers about what's going to happen next you know is this going to really damage an already vulnerable Western Christianity still further or will it on the contrary, lead to a kind of resurgence in church going once people are allowed back and realise what they've been missing. Which side do you come down on, do you think? So in, in, in the piece, I come down on the gloomier side. I think that this is going to cause a lot of pain for the Christian church for several reasons um, that I outline in the piece. I think perhaps the, the strongest of them is that church going uh, is a habit uh, and it's a difficult habit to sustain going every Sunday and it's especially difficult if it, the habit stops so going again after perhaps months of uh, being out of the habit will be quite difficult for a large number of people even a very devout people. Tom has Christianity ever faced a challenge like this can we learn anything from its millennia of history? Well I think that what uh, the, the very long history of Christianity teaches us is that Christian convictions, Christian beliefs, Christian assumptions uh, are not necessarily dependent upon Christian practice. And I think that the way that our country is responding to this crisis, looked at in the broadest historical perspective, remains a highly Christian one. There's an, an argument, I think, quite correctly put forward by the sociologist Rodney Stark, that what really enabled Christianity to take off was the reaction of the church to a terrible series of plagues that hit the Roman Empire in particularly the third century. And the result of this was that the church served as a kind of proto-welfare state. It it took for granted that it wasn't just the rich who should be cared for in times of illness and mass pandemic, but everybody. And this is an assumption that is now so deeply embedded not just in the West, but actually wherever Western missionaries have gone, by and large, if you look at hospital systems in places, say, like China, they were set up by Western missionaries. But I, I, I think that this, therefore, is reflective of the fact that our assumption that, that, that 
we should sacrifice large elements of the economy to care for human lives of those who are vulnerable. This is reflective of the, the deep, deep roots that Christianity has in this country. Against that, there is perhaps a problem for confessional Christianity in that perhaps it's no longer necessary. Perhaps these these assumptions and beliefs that derive from Christianity are now so much a part of the air that we breathe that we don't actually need people going to church for them to be manifest. Mm. Luke, do you think that you know our current crisis might drive enough people to faith? Are you right, for example, that there's uh, no atheists in a foxhole? And Tom mentions there the charitable aims of Christianity in its early centuries. Yeah, well, I think the question is whether this will... This, I mean, there's, there's, there is some evidence that there's a kind of spiritual awakening going on, some mild evidence, I think. Um, for example, people are Googling the word prayer in ever greater numbers, and people in the United States are saying that they've been praying for an end to the coronavirus crisis, uh, even if they have no religious beliefs whatsoever normally. So there's, there's something going on. But just the question is, is that going to be big enough to convert people from agnosticism to actually going to church? every single Sunday. And I'm a bit sceptical at the moment that we're at, at that stage. The people who think there is going to be a resurgence are talking about the Second World War and how after that there was a great flourishing of uh, Christianity, especially in the United States. But I think as, as tragic and terrible as the present crisis is, it's not yet on the same scale as the Second World War in terms of mass death. And I think we really need, in order to have a massive civilizational change like the one that they're envisaging, I think that there would have to be sort of considerably more widespread suffering, unfortunately, for that to happen. Tom, Luke's pessimism is fair, isn't it? I mean, Christianity has been on the decline in the West and in Britain in particular in recent decades. Why do you think that is? Well, that's that's a huge question. But I think, I mean, if you look at the, the, I think one of the reasons very clearly is that the welfare state now provides people with what the churches used to provide. The ch- it's, it's, it's the churches that used to provide schools, that used to provide hospitals. It's, it's, it's Christianity that instilled in, 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 in people the assumption that, that everyone should be looked after if they fall sick. And, and that's now so deeply rooted that perhaps we don't need Christianity to sustain that. However, having said that, I, I think that there is a, a huge opportunity here for the church to remind people of where these assumptions actually come from. And it's often been the case in the past that at particular moments of stress and, and plague is obviously, um, pandemic is obviously um, such a moment of stress. The potency of the Christian faith is that it can articulate dread and hope in in a mythic way. And I don't use mythic in a pejorative sense. I mean, in a way that transcends the kind of rational calculus that inevitably underpins how policymakers and medical people and politicians structure their response. So I was very, I, I, I think perhaps along with the Queen's broadcast, on global terms, the most powerful symbolic attempt to channel how people feel and to offer them hope and to give them an expression of the intensity of the suffering that people face was the Pope's broadcast from a very, very empty, rain-swept St. Peter's Square, where he prayed before a very ancient icon of the Virgin Mary, which had originally come to Rome in the pontificate of Gregory I, Gregory the Great, who likewise had confronted plague. 
And Gregory himself wrote a, a great commentary on the book of Job, which is probably the profoundest meditation in the whole of the Bible about the question that, that Christians now are facing, which is why does an all-good, all-powerful God allow such things to happen? And these are expressions of the profoundest, the most successful, the most hegemonic way of explaining what humans are here for and what their relationship is to the universe that, culturally speaking, has ever existed. And the church, I think, to succeed, needs to go beyond serving as just a kind of uh, the spiritual wing of the, the of the welfare state, which is pretty much the role that it's playing now. I think it needs to recapture some of its self-confidence. It needs to channel these very, very profound and mythic resonances that at the moment I feel are not adequately being sounded. Luke, what do you make of the church leaders and their response to coronavirus? Do you think they've been inspiring enough to believers and non-believers? I think the Pope's probably an exception on this, but I think generally the bishops have, have left their flocks feeling bewildered and isolated. I mean, for, for example, it's now very, very hard for Catholic priests to go into hospitals uh, and to anoint uh, victims of coronavirus because the bishops have issued guidance uh, really discouraging them from doing so unless they're ex expressly invited to do so by a hospital and you know in these really chaotic times you wonder how often that's going to happen so there's a feeling I think of, of, of a growing distance between bishops and, and, and their flocks and I think we're only see the, the, the full extent of that uh, chasm uh, afterwards, when things return to normal and people kind of reevaluate what happened, people are certainly feeling really alone in in their houses, not being able to go to church. Uh, and I think that's going to leave a, a painful legacy uh, with, you know, within the churches that's going to be quite hard to overcome. Obviously, the way that the churches are trying to combat this is through, as you mentioned, virtual services. Luke, do you think that they, mm. you know, hit the spot at all? Um, not for me, they don't. No. Uh, I mean, they're, they're better than nothing. But... The point is that Christianity and many religions do require communities coming to come together and they require a kind of tangible things in order to, to properly sort of function, um, you know, sacraments and so on. So it just feels like we're in a bit of a stasis at the moment and that live streaming, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a, a good recent development, but it's not really going to provide for people's spiritual needs, uh, especially if it lasts for months and months and months. I, I think that that uh, particularly the bishops in the, in the Church of England, the archbishops, I should say, are, are missing a trick. I think that they have a, a huge responsibility to do everything that they can to keep certainly the larger churches open. If people can go to supermarkets and that can be handled, then I think it should be possible to handle people going into churches, if only to pray. I mean, maybe not services, but going in to pray. Because presumably, if you're a bishop, you think that keeping open a cathedral or a church is at least as important as keeping open a supermarket. And if bishops don't believe that, then I think that their lack of self-confidence is obviously going to infect believers and certainly non-believers. <laughs> Throughout this crisis, I've been reminded of, of a, a, an incredibly powerful moment in the life of a, an early Northumbrian abbot who, uh, at a time of plague, everyone in his monastery dies, apart from the abbot himself and a small boy, and the abbot and the small boy continue in this corpse-haunted place to keep it consecrated to God, to continue to uh, recite the offices, to perform the holy services. And that, that boy was 
almost certainly the venerable will be the author of the first great history of the English church. So this is not something new, actually. This is something that, you know, there is an enormous hinterland of exemplar that bishops could be drawing upon, which I feel that they are spurning. And I think it's a, 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 a terrible mistake. Tom and Luke, thank you very much. Next, New York City has become a new epicentre of a coronavirus. Dr. Kanta Ahmed doesn't usually work in intensive care, but she's recently volunteered to go back to her ICU to help with the fight against COVID-19. She joins me now to tell me about what it's like on the front line in New York, together with John Rick MacArthur, the president of Harper's Magazine. So Kanta, can you tell me what the scenes are like in hospital at the moment? Yeah, uh, many different scenes. And one moment today was I took a few minutes to take some fresh air uh, and stepped out of the building by our parking lot. And on one of the walls of the building, there are an incredible number of drawings and pictures from little children, probably from a local school, sending thank you notes to nurses and doctors. And it goes on and on and on for several walls. I actually took pictures of them today. And there was another woman, I think she was probably a nurse, looking at the wall. And I asked her if she'd ever seen anything like this. And she said no. And I also don't remember ever seeing any kind of tribute to that scale to us as doctors and nurses. And she said, the only time I've seen this are when the troops come home from war. And then I said to my coworker, I said, I hope we all make it back. It was a very poignant moment. Inside the hospital, everybody, I mean, all of the physicians at least, and, and any other staff that we meet, everybody is suddenly an incredible expert on personal protective equipment, hand hygiene. I mean, I'm speaking to you about 45 minutes after I got home. And now when I come home, I immediately disrobe and put all my clothes into the washing machine and boil them, immediately shower. And we have developed this entire routine of disinfecting cell phones, car keys. I have a handbag that is never coming into the house and which will be going into a furnace at the end of this, the obsession with infection control really is a reflection of our fear. And people are wearing different levels of protection. We, we're very fortunate. We have enough personal protective equipment in our hospital. But each day that we spend there, I'm no different. We're adding more layers. I went out and purchased goggles because I realized I'm always touching my eyeglasses and the virus also can enter through the conjunctiva. And so we're wearing goggles, we're wearing face shields, we're wearing masks, we're wearing N95s. It's become just this enormous presence. And you walk in and many times I cannot recognize my colleagues of either many years or even a colleague I worked with yesterday because I'm seeing them either with a mask or I'm seeing them for the first time without a mask. So the feeling of alienation and this strange world that we're in now begins as soon as I park my car. And then inside the intensive care unit, there are huge numbers of patients. My unit is completely full. We have 13 patients in this unit. It's an open unit. That means that the entire unit is infected, is full of patients infected with COVID-19, all severely ill, all on ventilators. And that means that when you're working in these units, there isn't a place where you can retreat and know that you're going to be virus-free. It is the first time in my profession, even though I, I was sort of uh, reared in the AIDS era, but I never have felt at risk being a physician, seeing patients until now. 
even with AIDS, and, and the times that I was an intern with AIDS, AIDS was a universally lethal condition. Nobody had any treatment for AIDS. And I remember those patients, they looked exactly like the Dallas Buyers Club movie, if you've ever seen that. So that was the New York that I arrived in. But this feeling of vulnerability that I'm going to do everything I can for my patients, and I don't know if I'm going to be one of these patients that I'm seeing. And I'm just thinking out loud because I've really not talked to anyone since finishing work until now. And um, I think this is why the nurse looking at the pictures with me said, it's, this is like when the troops come home. And I said to her, I hope we make it home. There's a real sense that we might lose some of us in our ranks, and that might even be, be yours truly, God forbid. That's very novel. Rick, strange times inside hospitals, but also strange times on the streets of New York where the city has been locked down. What is morale like in the city at the moment? Well, we're not locked down like London or Paris, or and specifically not like Paris, where you have to prove to the police that you've got a good reason to be on the street. Uh, in New York, you can still walk out the door and walk around the neighborhood, go into the park, Kids can't go into the playground. They've closed the playgrounds, and they've actually gone so far as to re remove basketball hoops to discourage people from playing basketball games together. Uh, so we don't feel under siege quite the same way as you do in Europe. Rome, Milan, I, I gather London, and, and I know Paris. But with that comes this feeling, this profound feeling of dread, which is exacerbated by the confusion of political leadership. You've got a, a strange, strange situation where two Queens-born politicians, Donald Trump, who's a rich kid from Queens, and Andrew Cuomo, uh, who's the governor of New York and from a more modest background, are, are competing for the attention of the American people about whose methods or whose uh, approach to the, to the epidemic or the pandemic is the better one. And it's a fascinating thing to watch. I'm not sure it's uh, that edifying, but it's as a political analyst, I'm very interested in seeing who's going to win. The president does not inspire confidence, President Trump, for, ob for reasons I can go into. Governor Cuomo inspires more confidence. However, there's nothing to indicate that Cuomo was any better, better prepared or that New York State was any better, any better prepared than anyone else for this uh, astonishing uh, situation. Kanda, do you think that on a more macro level, the healthcare system is coping despite the huge stress all of you medical workers are under? Uh, that's a very big question, and it's a question I would answer having worked both in the National Health Service in Britain, also in a state healthcare system in South Carolina, one of the poorest communities in the United States, and also in a national health service in Saudi Arabia at a time when Saudi Arabia was extraordinarily wealthy with a smaller population than today. So first of all, I am amazed that we are coping to the degree that we are coping with this disaster. And one of the ways is the sheer volume. Just to give you a sense, we normally may have three intensive care units where we might see adult patients if the hospital was extremely busy. We had expanded to seven on Thursday. We have gone to be on nine intensive care units today. NYU in Manhattan, I'm told, in, its in, in one of its towers has 18 intensive care units. Now, we are a very solid 
healthcare system, NYU Langone, but that is an incredible surge in capacity that they've been able to cope with. We have long exhausted all of the ventilators that we own, and we've had deliveries because of Cuomo's efforts and because of Trump's efforts. Multiple aliquots of ventilators arrived on Saturday night, and we actually get emails that we have more ventilators, and they arrived again on Monday, and somehow we're able to continue delivering care. So this healthcare system is operating better than I could have ever imagined if this happened to Switzerland, where the Swiss have a state-of-the-art healthcare system, I'm not sure even how they would have dealt with it because of the volume, the severity, the number, the frequency. Some nights we have 14 critically ill people arrive and get admitted. That is an entire intensive care unit in 12 hours. So that gives you an idea of the sheer volume. The other thing that people often don't know is that even though I'm at a hospital which takes insurance. We are constantly attending and providing critical illness for those who have no insurance, who are undocumented. Some patients collapse and are unidentified. So even if they have insurance, you can't access it. So there has been a tremendous provision of care to anybody who needs it. Now, I have been shocked, uh, and I'm sure Rick would agree, by the circumstances that have been described at Elmhurst Hospital and some of the other New York City hospitals where they just couldn't provide protective equipment for their staff, according to the reports of employees there. And that surprised me. It also takes me aback, as we truly are one of the wealthiest countries in the world. And in, irrespective of our, our economic power, we spend more of our GDP on health than any other nation in the world by far. So this has surprised people. And I do believe this event, the pandemic, is probably going to change healthcare in many ways, the practice of medicine in many ways. One of the things it's going to do is immediately stop this philosophy of hospitals operating like hotels at 105 or 110% capacity. Oh, well, we don't have a room in the inn. Give us a few hours, we'll create a room. That operating at full capacity is purely driven by the kinds of payments that insurance gives per DRG, per diagnostic code. So the more diagnoses you can get in and out of the hospital, the more quickly, the more profitable and the less loss the hospital sustains, the more profit the hospital makes. That's probably going to change. We're now going to be designing hospitals with a 30% extra capacity, God forbid, another calamity fall. People are going to rethink about how we invest in our health system. Why don't we have enough critical care doctors? Why are we having to get people out of retirement to assist at a time at, at, at a time like this. So I, I think I would, this is going to change the structure, size, and philosophy of of healthcare in that setting. And that doesn't mean universal healthcare. I mean, what we expect our healthcare systems to do is going to change. I hope you're right. But the irony is that we're talking the day that Bernie Sanders has quit the race for president, and he should have been. A, boosted by this crisis. And, and, it, and of course, it's too late for him because the Democratic Party doesn't want universal health care. They don't want rational approaches to taking care of sick people. Remember, New York is, we, sh we should remind your audience that New York is leading the country in, in both infections and in deaths. Rick, I want to ask you, um, you mentioned just there that Bernie Sanders should have been making the most of the situation, but hasn't been able to. Do you think President Trump has been able to make some political capital out of this? Or is he just playing catch up um, like everyone else? 
well, he's been able to make political capital of it simply by being on television every day and presenting himself as the leader of the country. But his statements have been absurd. I mean, he he minimized the crisis from the beginning, practically encouraged conspiracy theories that it was a hoax and that it was exaggerated, and kept playing the states off against each other, telling the governors, well, if you're nice to me, I'll make more of an effort to get you get you more ventilators or more masks, but you have to be nice to me. Uh, and then, of course, famously or infamously said that he hoped that the country would be back open for business by Easter uh, with the churches full, which is absurd and dangerous and really idiotic. And now he's, he's retreated from that position and he's actually become sort of, as we'd say in French, a dirigiste. I mean, he's suddenly playing the role of, of commander-in-chief fighting a war, leading the country in a centralized way. Some of the time, sometimes he, he reverts to his nasty, uh, insulting behavior vis-a-vis uh, -vis the governors. But he has actually now responded to the crisis in a more orderly fashion so that, as Cantal said, you know, respirators and uh, masks are being delivered uh, in places where they're needed, and some of them are coming from the federal government. The irony in a country that absolutely worships at the altar of capitalism and the free market, there's an airlift coming from China with emergency medical supplies organized by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner. <laughs> I think that's just one of the great ironies. I shouldn't laugh, but it is a bizarre irony that, a, that communist China is donating not quite donating, but but I, but delivering airlifts of emergency medical equipment to the United States. Everything that Rick has said, I have observed um, that those um, events with the president minimizing the pandemic. But a couple of the president's instincts on this pandemic have been very good, and they were hugely criticized at the time. He was, I believe, the first world leader to recommend a travel embargo in China sometime in January. And he was hugely criticized for that. And, but an editorial in the journal Science did confirm that that suspension of travel, which Trump initiated and then over 70 countries followed, 59 airlines stopped flying to China right about that same point, reduced the international case transmission from China overseas by about 80 percent and bought us time. The other thing that he did that was also effective and should have happened within Europe much faster, I think it was too late, but it was a good move, was suspending travel from Europe. Now, we were already seeing the cataclysmal events in Italy, which I heard about more through my professional critical care colleagues in France than I did from the television. And at the time of those outbreaks, people from Holland were still going to vacation in Milan and coming back. So travel within Europe around Italy at the time of the outbreak was completely not restricted. So Trump's instincts on travel limitations, even though the pandemic knows no borders, did buy us time. And he has another good instinct, two good instincts, which I think. One is the idea that certain areas where there's intense activity of the outbreak, as we are seeing right here in Nassau County, I really do think should be subject to tailored quarantine. That means more immobilization of the population, not less. In England, where my parents live, they have to stay at home for three months because of this pandemic. We're not doing things like that here in, in New York or Nassau County, and we probably would benefit from that. And the other is that's garnered lots of controversy is his, are his remarks about Plaquenil, 
or hydroxychloroquine. Now, I have to say, it is hysterical to see, I mean, comical to see the president talking about Plaquenil. <laughs> I mean, I found it very entertaining. But I did see the paper from the south of France in a very small group of, of patients that was very early on. I saw the paper pre-publication, a colleague reviews papers for that particular journal, and it showed dramatic reduction in viral load. It didn't tell us we, with Plaquenil. So you take Plaquenil, your viral shedding goes down. It seems to diminish the viral burden. Does it make people live longer? We don't know. Does it make their lungs less injured? We don't know. But Trump was correct. Plaquenil is an old drug. We know its side effects. We know its interactions. And we had nothing else. What's the harm, even if we don't know the benefit? And I treat all my patients in the intensive care unit with Plaquenil and azithromycin because of that small study that's now being expanded. This isn't the only treatment the critically ill are getting. They're also getting a very traditional treatment with macrolide antibiotics that are right. anti-inflammatory. We're now beginning, this week we're giving them steroids early on. Last week we were not giving right. them steroids. Every week we're changing something in our practice depending on whether we think we've seen success. This is a very different lung injury. There is no one in the world who's ever seen this before COVID manifested. So it's just... This is a calamity I would not wish on my worst enemy to manage a global pandemic. And this pandemic has befallen this president who is very polarizing, who invites all kinds of, you know, drama upon himself in how he uses his words. But I feel when I have these patients in front of me, if you told me that Coca-Cola would work, I would try it because we, we need to help them. And some patients are getting better. Thank you, Cantor and Rick. And to read more about Cantor's experience, you can find the doctor's notebook in the issue this week. And last, just how important is humour in getting through dark times? Historian Jonathan Waterloo's latest book takes a look at the jokes that got the Russians through the Soviet era. And he joins me down the line now. Jonathan, you write about anecdote in this week's issue of The Spectator. Can you tell me what they are? Yes, this was an incredible and unexpected to many people part of Soviet culture because we think of the period as a time where it's intensely repressive and you could be put away in a gulag for perhaps 10 years just for saying the wrong thing. And yet these anecdoti, which are political jokes, were absolutely rife throughout the period, even under Stalin, where that word could, those, those single jokes could end up having you torn away from your family and sent to Siberia for a decade or more. But there is this whole culture that's now remembered and it's seen a new life, I think, under Putin's times as well, where people find this outlet where they need to discuss the things that frustrate them, the things that confuse them, and to assert a sense of their own critical ability and to share it with people. Uh, so anecdoti specifically are not just jokes, but usually they are specifically of a political nature, and they were an irrepressible part of popular opinion and the general sense of the, the spirit of the people throughout the Soviet Union and beyond. Can you give us an example of a joke? Yeah, I think there's there's one that we can all identify with right now, which is, uh, say, a customer goes into a shop and says, do you have any meat? And the sales assistant goes, meat? No, this is the shop that doesn't have any fish. The shop without any meat is next door. <laughs> so you write about it being a subversive weapon. So it, was it a way of gaining power over a pretty oppressive situation? Well, I think that we can easily think of it as a weapon because in the state's eyes, it was that kind of 
intense, subversive, countercultural and counter-orthodoxy act. But I think that whilst it was treated that way by the state, because it wanted absolute conformity in every word and deed of the people, for the people who were actually sharing it, I think it's much more ambiguous and did a lot more, because it could feel like striking back at power, and yet usually, because of the dangers involved, people would be sharing these with the other people that they trusted, their friends and their families, and it helped them to let off steam, to provide a sense of vital oxygen in this life of stifling conformity. And where it was particularly powerful was, as you say, an ability to assert the self and say, I, I exist, I don't agree with the propaganda that I'm being told, I do see through it, and it's incredibly powerful psychologically and emotionally to be able to put that out loud with people who hopefully are not going to denounce you and take you away for doing so. It reminds me of, if we think of a different context, but an equally um, profound one, of the work of Viktor Frankl, who was an amazing psychotherapist who during the Nazi times was sent to Auschwitz and other concentration camps. And he wrote this incredible book, which continues to be a bestseller today, called Man's Search for Meaning. And in it, he emphasizes that the way to be able to survive even the most dire and terrifying circumstances relies on your ability to change how you interpret it, how you think about it. Your inner world is the only world over which you truly have power, especially in the face of uh, direct repression, oppression, being locked up, and in the face of death, in the case of being in Auschwitz. And his book is filled with jokes. They're not the main event, they're not the focus of it, and yet even in those conditions, he and his fellow prisoners were cracking jokes because it helped them to cope with and make some kind of sense of together what they were going through. Mm. How did you do the research for your book? Were these jokes well documented? I was told when I started that there'd be no hope of managing to do this, um, but I did manage. So there is a long oral culture of this, and people have collected over the years, and you can, you can buy them today in translation as well, collections of these jokes. But that didn't tell me much about who told them and where and why. So I had to dig deeper, and I went into the archives and found that because this was a state with totalitarian desires... They wanted absolute conformity, but that caused them a problem that they wanted then to know what are people really thinking, because there was no public space to share what you were really thinking. There was no free press. And so they started monitoring what people were saying. There are regular reports at every level from the factory floor up to major committee meetings, which are trying to gather data on the mood of the population. And then beyond that, because people were arrested uh, frequently for telling these jokes, because it was seen as anti-Soviet agitation on a par uh, with trying to be uh, a revolutionary, a rebel and overthrow the state. Unfortunately, a lot of the material that I used was from people's criminal records where they are forced into interrogation cells, people are uh, giving testimonies about what they said at work and repeating these jokes over and over again. And I saw hundreds and hundreds of these files, which is kind of unexpected part of a bureaucratic system. But because they were so worried about jokes, they wanted to diligently record them as though these were the kind of thought crimes that George Orwell wrote about. Do you think that, you know, you give examples of Stalinist Russia and obviously you just mentioned Auschwitz as well. Do you think there are limits to humour? You know, are there things that we mustn't ever joke about? 
I think that's that's a great question, and it's one which I think we all, um, at some point or another, struggle with. And stand-up comedians I've seen in the media recently are being told, no, you can't be joking about the coronavirus right now, it is way too soon, or after 9-11 there were similar concerns. But I don't think that this is something where we can just have one blanket rule because humour is contextual. It depends who you're talking to, why you're saying it. The same way I could speak to a friend and we could share a joke and right now we're talking about things that are frightening and scary and jokes help us to let the tension out of that, the fear out of that. Privately, perhaps we could tell a joke about the coronavirus which could seem very intense and really disturbing for for people who don't have that sense of mutual understanding that I know my friend doesn't mean it in this way which is harsh and callous we're coping with things that frighten us but say we had that joke and we shared it would I then go and try and do a stand-up routine with that joke in front of NHS workers who are in a terrible situation right now having to deal with the, the grim realities of this virus? No, I wouldn't. These are issues where we need to think about who is speaking and why, where we're doing it. But ultimately, I think humans are and always have laughed about everything, especially when it's stuff that we think that we're not meant to. Because Humour is something which helps us to explore things that are deeply uncomfortable. It helps us to manoeuvre our way through things that are difficult to talk about and to try out ideas by saying the unsayable. Jonathan, thank you so much. And that's it for this week. Pick up the issue to read all of the pieces discussed and tune in to Saturday's audio reads to hear from Toby Young, Douglas Murray and Melissa Kite. Thanks for listening and join us again next week. (laughs) 